The Guardian. Such a beautiful little house as it is, with everything so bright and new, with the flowers on the carpets looking as if freshly gathered, and the green leaves on the paper as if they had just come out, with the spotless muslin curtains and the blushing rose-coloured furniture, and Dora's garden hat with the blue ribbon, do I remember now. How I loved her in such another hat when I first knew her, already hanging on its little peg. Charles Dickens had a turbulent childhood, which rose and fell with the fortunes of his father. This constant flux meant that Charles was barometrically sensitive, not just to the standards of accommodation, but also to its location. I'm John Henley, and in this podcast walk, we'll take you round the house in which he was born 200 years ago. It's now the Charles Dickens Birthplace Museum in Portsmouth. The tour is designed to be taken on location, but if you're listening at home, this podcast should work as a documentary in its own right. So we're standing now on the old commercial road just outside the Birthplace Museum, and I'm here with the journalist Veronica Horwell. Veronica, tell us about the area at the time of Dickens' birth. We're just slightly inland and outside the walls of old Portsmouth. And Portsmouth Dockyard, which was first at its mightiest during the Napoleonic Wars, is half an hour's walk away across what was then open country, including Cherry Garden Field. This was a suburb new-built for those who worked for or had business with the Navy. John Dickens... Charles's father, had rented in this area when he married in his mid-twenties. And, and he did what for, for a living? He worked for the Navy Pay Office, an accountant we'd call him. Just five months after Charles was born, the family had to trade down to a much smaller house in the Mina area. No more front garden, mm. no more Blossom View. Then they went up another notch as the family expanded. All Charles's childhood was like that, up a bit, down a lot. A house with a parlour among hay meadows, then crash. The boy alone in a garret in a slum. By the time he was a teen, he could evaluate exactly the social degree and likely income. Not just for any street, but for each house, each sublet room within it. Mm pretty precious asset for a sort of socially aware novelist then. (laughs) We're standing here just outside the house. We're looking at a plain terraced townhouse uh, built to a pattern that was devised in London after the Great Fire. There's a half basement kitchen, very familiar to people who know similar kind of areas in London and other domestic offices down there. There's a couple of attics for the children and the servants at the top and four decent though pretty small rooms for the family on the remaining two floors and a staircase running up between them all. Dickens was very exacting in the way he would arrange his living quarters, wasn't he? He chose his own furniture and furnishings. I don't think his wife got much of a look in and he was so exacting a tenant that the moment he got into a hotel room or a hired holiday lodging, he'd rearrange all the furniture. One side effect of living in and visiting such different houses and ways of life when he was just an observant child was that he enjoyed imagining fantasy interiors in minute detail. It was almost like making a model inside his head. And, of course, he exactly reported those that revealed the characters he wrote about. Hmm. And and tell us how this obsession with all things domestic sort of manifested itself through his characters, then. 
He wasn't prejudiced in favour of the neat doll's house for a nuclear family like this one. He had a very strong conviction that with love and care and cleanliness, any combination of unlikely people on even unlikelier premises could be a happy home. Think of the romantic idea of the Peggotty home in Yarmouth, which was a recycled barge on dry land. He imagined David Copperfield having this boyhood dream of a cabin, right down to oyster shells framing the mirror and a nosegay of seaweed in a blue mug. He could be really world of interiors sometimes. <laughs> Extraordinary. Well, let's make our way inside now then, and we're going to head straight to the top of the house, to the children's room to start with. We passed several more children on the way upstairs, whom it was difficult to avoid treading on in the dark. And as we came into Mrs Jellyby's presence, one of the poor little things, called Pee-Pee, fell downstairs, down a whole flight, as it sounded to me, with a great noise. All the little children came to the landing outside to look at the phenomenon of Pee-Pee lying on my bed, and our attention was distracted by the constant apparition of noses and fingers in situations of danger between the hinges of the doors. It was impossible to shut the door of our room. Therefore, I proposed to the children that they should come in and be very good at my table, and I would tell them the story of Little Red Riding Hood while I dressed, which they did, and were as quiet as mice. Here we are then, at the very top of the house, in the front attic, which was the children's bedroom. Um, it's quite a small room. We're up under the eaves. There's a dormer window looking out over the front. A couple of display cabinets in the corner with, uh, with nice Dickens figurines. Charles, of course, came to have five living siblings, and he ended up producing ten children of his own, uh, only nine of whom survived, sadly. His offspring were reared in the nurseries on the top floor of his homes, very much like this, uh, by a wet nurse with nursemaids in attendance, and his live-in sister-in-law taught the children to read. But all the mess and the muddle of childhood was kept away from the adults of the family, and the boys were educated elsewhere entirely as boarders. Veronica, what was Dickens like as a father? He had a problem as a father. He had an unused childhood of his own. When he shared play and amusements with his children. He behaved sometimes like a professional entertainer. He was a brilliant magician. And more often he behaved like a competitive, rather grabby child himself. He wrote pretty often of a strong sentiment that childhood, boyhood and its enthusiasms, was an ideal state of innocence to be preserved into and through adult life. But then he also wrote in the old curiosity shop that even the cheap delights of childhood must be bought and paid for. And he'd been, if not quite a gutter urchin, even in the blacking factory, mm. a boy camping out with his sisters and brothers and his mother in emptied out. Well, I mean, they changed houses incredibly often, didn't mm. they? And they also pawned all their belongings. Mm. And so, you know, most of it was gone... And there wasn't much food, and there wasn't much fuel, and the blinds were down so that the bailiffs couldn't see that mm. there was anyone within. Mm. And the children would have been aware of their father's circumstances, yeah. I He imagine. absolutely knew, you'll find, that 
he describes being worried sick by knowing about his father's financial distress and his mother's worries about it. Mm. So imagine a room like this, probably smaller, probably meaner, in some of the many lodgings of his childhood, only with five or six rather underclad children tumbling Mm. around the floor, wailing a lot. Pretty miserable. Okay, well now we'll just cross over the landing then and into the garret at the back of the house. There never was such an old-fashioned child in her looks and manner. She must have been at work from her cradle. She seemed as much afraid of Dick as Dick was amazed at her. I haven't got anything to do with the lodgings, said Dick. Tell him to call again. Oh, but please will you come and show the lodgings, returned the girl. It's 18 shillings a week and us finding plate and linen. Boots and clothes is extra and fires in wintertime is eightpence a day. Why don't you show them yourself? You seem to know all about them, said Dick. Miss Sally said I wasn't to, because people wouldn't believe the attendance was good if they saw how small I was first. What do you mean to say you are? The cook? Yes, I do plain cookie, replied the child. I'm a housemaid too. I do all the work of the house. So here we are at the back of the house in the garret, pretty much the mirror image of the of the room at the front, as I suppose you might expect. Many children of the middle class were raised by domestic staff and they formed very close bonds with nursery servants. But Dickens' childhood relationships with the staff were particularly strong and deep, weren't they, Veronica? Well, there was often, not always, but usually, a nursemaid for the brood. At one time there was a young woman who was about au pair age and quite a lot of fun would slide down the banisters. Play play. with the children. Yeah. Mm. But the one he really remembered and wrote about was a rather scary older woman who told him horror and ghost stories at bedtime about Captain Murderer who put the bodies of his wives in pies and ate them and Chips, the shipwright, who made a pact with the devil. A nursemaid was almost a luxury, but you can be pretty certain that all the way through Dickens's childhood, even when they were in the Marshalsea, that is, they were in a debtor's prison, mm. there was a maid of all work. Uh, is that because that was simply the custom at the time, or it was a prior- it was priority in the family it budget? Was <laughs> Look, there's a power socket. In every other house in this area, there is hot and cold running water. There is an internal flush loo. There are vacuum cleaners. There is a cooker you can switch on and off. There will be a washing machine to do the laundry. None of that existed. None of that existed. Mm -hmm. There would have been at most a loo at the bottom of the garden non-flush. So all the slops of the house have got to be got Mm -hmm. out. All the water has got to be pumped up Mm -hmm. and brought in. All cooking is at best done on a range. Mm -hmm. And in some of the places they were, it was done on the unopened fire. All cleaning, all laundry has to be done. You're not going to catch Elizabeth Dickens, Charles Dickens' mother, doing any of that as she possibly could. (laughs) So all of it is being done by one poor little maid of work. Two, if you were lucky, a cook and a maid of all work, but I'm sure they were seldom that lucky. Where did they come from? What kind of background would the the maids have been from? The lowest level of maids of all work almost invariably came from the local workhouse. Mm. 
bit more robust, bit tougher ones in somewhat kindlier households. I think of David Copperfield and his beloved Peggy were big, strong country lasses, could tackle anything, probably including shoeing a horse. But so many of them, when people were in straitened circumstances, they were some sniffling, cold, half-dressed, miserable little slavey. And Dickens being Dickens, I mean, I suppose he took pity on them, really. More than that, he wanted to know their story. And although in later life he had quite difficult and distant relationships with servants, when he was a child, the servants were his friends. The girl from Chatham Workhouse who went to London with them and accompanied them even into the Marshalsea, that is, she worked there all day and slept in a garret nearby at night. Dickens used to meet her before the Marshalsea opened for the day and tell her stories. And I suppose when you look at the old curiosity shop, there's a very much a, a, a character in the that The little marchioness, yes. Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't know that she's actually got better origins than she thinks, but she's just a little slavey for everybody. Mm. Fascinating. All right, we'll head downstairs now then, and to the main bedroom. I resolved to form my little wife Dora's mind. I began immediately. When Dora was very childish, and I would have infinitely preferred to humour her, I tried to be grave and disconcerted her, and myself too. I accustomed myself to giving her, as it were quite casually, little scraps of useful information or sound opinion. And she started from them when I let them off, as if they had been crackers. The formation went on very slowly. Still, I persevered. Finding at last, however, that I had effected nothing, it began to occur to me that perhaps Dora's mind was already formed. I abandoned my scheme, resolving henceforth to be satisfied with my child wife. So I bought a pretty pair of earrings for her and a collar for her dog, Jip. So here we are then in the marital bedroom. That's certainly what it looks like. There's a quite a fine four-poster bed, a, a washstand, a couple of chests of drawers, etc. Veronica, why does this place hold the key then to unlocking Dickens's emotional problems? Dickens married young and unwisely and he would have married even younger and even more unwisely if he could. He wanted sex. Okay. And the support and company that a wife and a complete household would create for him. He wanted to set up his own secure, safe world, since he'd certainly never known one as a child. And then, of course, later on in middle age he realised that he was absolutely miserable with his wife, Catherine Hogarth. He'd chosen her for her light girlishness and submissiveness, and it was a catastrophe, frankly. Mm. She just couldn't be any more than the limited and lesser person that he'd actually wanted her to be in the first place. And then that wasn't enough. Meanwhile, she was plump, she was exhausted... All those pregnancies and miscarriages. And neither he nor she could really cope with what the relationship had become. And of course, I mean, you you couldn't sort of divorce it. Absolutely impossible. What he did was to declare a separation. 
And I think it's fascinating that his first major act of that separation was to leave his wife's ample bed, much bigger than this one, I believe, (laughs) which he'd shared for over 20 years by then, to sleep in a single bed in an adjacent dressing room. He didn't leave her for another woman? Ah, he did leave her for another woman, but at that point, the other woman hadn't said yes. We don't know if she ever did say yes, actually. (laughs) But he was certainly obsessed with her for the rest of his life, so you can lay your bets. Mm. He was both absolutely comfortable in the marital bedroom for 20 years Mm. a marital bedroom was the ordinary comfort of his life something that he expected the support of women and then once he'd fallen in love with Nellie Ternan the actress suddenly he becomes a kind of semi-bachelor he he abandons his wife he takes as many of his family as will go with him which was most of them off to somewhere else to live and I mean, his his view of women as well. I mean, he, what was his sort of ideal of a, of a woman? Worshipfully loving to their spouses, utterly devoted to their children. He doesn't forgive Mrs. Jellyby, Peepee's fall, and the messy, wretched, underattended children of Mrs. Jellyby's house. And they could do nothing at all outside the home. Oh no, non-domestic role for preference. No, <laughs> actresses accepted because of Nellie, and because he needed actresses to cast in his private theatricals. Also authors, when he needed copy of quality, he um, greatly encouraged Mrs Gaskell. And philanthropy was acceptable if you were grand enough. I mean, he was looking for a mother. He was looking for a mother. His mother was fairly careless and carefree, and he never, never forgave her for accepting that he should be sent to the blacking factory when he was just on his way out of it, assuming that it was perfectly okay for him to go back there. Did, did that transfer, did that attitude transfer to his daughters? How did he, what did he expect of them? Support. The best of the daughters, Katie, fought him back. And it was a loving relationship, but it was a difficult one. And after his death, she was pretty forthcoming about what a depressive and self-centred man he could be. Okay, well, let's head then now across the landing again into the bachelor chamber next door. Uh, The apartments, which Mr Dombey reserved for his own inhabiting, were attainable from the hall and consisted of a sitting room, a library, which was in fact a dressing room, so that the smell of hot-pressed paper, vellum, morocco and russia leather contended in it with the smell of diverse pairs of boots and a kind of conservatory or little glass breakfast room beyond, commanding a prospect of the trees before mentioned and, generally speaking, of a few prowling cats. Mr Dombey, in his den, remained a very shade. So here we are in the back chamber of the house then, Veronica, much more sparsely furnished than the one uh, on the other side of the corridor, except there's a... Rather intriguing chaise long, covered in, in, in green velvet there. What's, what's that? That came from Gad's Hill. That's the couch on which he left this life. We don't know if he really did have his terminal stroke 
at Gad's Hill, or as the alternative theory goes, whether he actually had it at his mistress's, if she was his mistress, <laughs> Nellie Ternan's house, which was some considerable distance from Gad's Hill. But however he had it, he eventually expired there mm. at Gad's Hill on that couch. Dickens ended up having to keep any number of houses by the end of his life, didn't he? At that very considerable expense. There was one for his wife, one for his mistress, a home in London for himself, of course, and his country home in Gad's Hill. What, what kind of a space would he try and create for himself when he was on his own where he could relax? A masculine territory, actually. Somewhere that wasn't besieged or overrun with women and children and their necessarily female servants. Somewhere that was only for papa. He could entertain male friends there. Uh, he could write there. The studies were crucial. When he was moving around, he often felt that he couldn't write until his box or trunk with the objects that went on his desk mm. turned up and he'd set them all out in order on what he was going to use for his desk. It was a sort of extension of a bachelor world that he genuinely enjoyed, probably as much as he enjoyed the idea of having a household, family, servants, all that kind yeah. of thing. Was his father like that as well? A big oh, yeah. yeah. I've spent a lot of time wondering quite what John Dickens actually got into debt on. He was in debt by the time he only had a couple of children, let alone the entire brood. Mm. And it's instructive to realise that the wine merchant tended to lead the creditors, oh, even really? ahead of the baker. Yep. His father wasn't a drunkard, as far as we know. He was convivial, but he was a relatively sober man. Mm. One of the interesting aspects of John is that he had a little library of quite good 18th century books. He had quite handsome copies of some of the best-selling novels of the 18th century, Travels, bound volumes of The Spectator and The Tatler. Really good 18th century writing. That's interesting. I mean, where might he have got those from? We're not quite sure whether they actually came from the big houses where his own parents had been senior servants. The old volume here or there, just wandering off. Or whether he'd actually bought them. They would have been very expensive purchases in imitation of the kind of world he'd seen amongst the aristocrats upstairs. Remember, John came from downstairs, but he was personable, he was intelligent, and he observed the way of life upstairs and the convivial wig and Tory drinking parties, the people from London coming over, smoking and drinking in the gentleman's study. Mm. He'd seen that as a child. Right. And I get the feeling always that that's how he went broke right. so often. He bought the first, second, third, fourth and fifth round. Charles had to have books, didn't he, in, in, in his little masculine realm? Well, those precious books that had belonged to his father and were probably in this room when Charles was born... But they went round many of those childhood accommodations. They were over, for example, in a house very much like this in Chatham, where the family lived, by then somewhat larger family. And Dickens, Charles Dickens used to sneak upstairs to where they were kept, and that's how he became a writer. He read them over and over. But he was also, when he was 12 or 13, and his father was in total debt in London, sent out to sell them. 
His first really good accommodation in London, up went the bookcases, in went a complete set of classics, economy classics actually, uh, many of them generously donated by his early publishers. But as he went on through life, so the bookcases turned to mahogany and new books tumbled into the house. Wherever he was, he was seldom beyond an arm's length from the nearest book. Right, well, let's move on to our next room. We're heading for the parlour now. Then there are the two parlours. The parlours in which we sit of an evening, my mother and I, and Peggotty. For Peggotty is quite our companion. When her work is done, and when we are alone, and the best parlour, where we sit on a Sunday, grandly, but not so comfortably... There is something of a doleful air about that room to me, for Peggotty has told me, I don't know when, but apparently ages ago, about my father's funeral and the company having their black cloaks put on. Peggotty and I were sitting one night by the parlour fire alone. I looked perseveringly at her as she sat at needlework, at the little bit of wax candle she kept for her thread. How old it looked, being so wrinkled in all directions at the brass thimble on her finger, at herself, whom I thought lovely. Here we are then in the front parlour of the house, very plushly furnished. Uh, This is where guests were received. It was near the front door so that outsiders didn't have to penetrate very deeply into a house's domestic life and didn't, as it were, get to know the sort of family business. There might be a less formal back parlour as a family sitting room like there was in David Copperfield, but not here. Here there's just the one. The best pictures were here in the parlour. There was always padded seating and any fashionable novelties would usually be displayed on the mantelpiece. So, Veronica, this room is important for a number of Dickens's characters, isn't it? In David Copperfield, it's Aunt Betsy Trotwood's natural space. It's where she takes tea with some ceremony. It's a woman's space, a women's space, essentially. Whether it's the front parlour or a house that has a back parlour, it's the place where women visit other women. And it's also their enthronement space, it's their Mm. ceremonial space. My favourite is the huge old room in... Our mutual friend. The Boffins. The Boffins room. This is a much older house and this room has been divided between Mr Boffin, whose idea of a comfortable space is something like an old-fashioned bar (laughs) parlour. It's got stone flags and sanded floors and hard wooden furniture and smoking space. And then Mrs Boffin has put in a nice bit of carpet with flowers, birds and wax flowers under glass. And they're a lovely couple. They share the space quite harmoniously. (laughs) What about children? Were the children allowed in here? Ah, you'd have to be a real pet of a child to be allowed in here very young. Just take a look round you. Mm. Everything is very breakable and there isn't a shop at the end of the road to replace it. And you probably haven't got the money to replace it anyhow. But it was a showroom, really, sort of family showroom. The very grandest sort of front parlours are the ancestors of the front rooms of my grandmother's childhood. 
where the piano was and you only went on Sundays and the covers were taken off the furniture and you sat dead upright and then you got out of the place into the back kitchen just as soon as you could where <laughs> it was warm and comfortable. They were the house on show. For example, if people were meeting for a funeral, this is where they'd meet. And that's something Dickens remembered, mm. notably in David Copperfield. And I mean, and the very fact of having a parlour said something about your social status, didn't it? So. Yes, because having separate rooms for separate purposes perfectly graduated you in the social scale. Notably, for example, the Peggotys, when Peggotty married Barkis. There was a parlour zone, but most of the living of the house was done as it was in the country, or it was a little bit further down the social scale. It was the kitchen that was the sitting room as well, in a very modern manner. Kind of the, the, sort of the one room that wasn't the bed, a bedroom, essentially. Yeah. It yeah. was the one zone that was used for all other purposes mm. and was the only place you'd probably keep warm. Mm. Having a room like this where... Tea was brought up to you. It's a woman's zone for tea, not strong drink. Little sherry now and again. But it is a female zone, although I've no doubt that, you know, John sometimes sat on that side of the fireplace harumphing a bit. By and large, this is where women visited each other. There were traditions and ceremonies about them visiting each other, seeing children. Mm. And this was their space. OK, right, well, we'll leave the front parlour now and head through to the dining room. Hideous solidity was the characteristic of the Podsnap plate. Everything was made to look as heavy as it could and to take up as much room on the table as possible. A corpulent, straddling épanier blotched all over as if it had broken out in an eruption rather than been ornamented, delivered a boastful address from an unsightly silver platform in the centre of the table. Four silver wine coolers, each furnished with four staring heads, each head obtrusively carrying a big silver ring in each of its ears, conveyed the sentiment up and down the table and handed it on to the pot-bellied silver salt cellars. All the big silver spoons and forks widened the mouths of the company expressly for the purpose of thrusting the sentiment down their throats with every morsel they ate. So here we are in the dining room then where the two or three meals of the day would be eaten as a family by all those who were old enough to use a knife and fork properly. Um, there's a sideboard with some cut glass on it and a, quite a small dining table, plates and platters on display. What range of people would have been serving food to the young Charles when he was a, a child? We're not quite sure how often the Dickens family afforded a cook, whether living or walking. Dickens certainly remembered a whole range of unlikely people giving a hand with preparing and serving up food on different premises as the family expanded, notably an old woman he remembered in one of their slummier London houses as preparing delicate hashes flavoured with walnut ketchup <laughs> which is no sense delicious actually that's roughly speaking um probably sauteed potatoes with worcester sauce perfect mm. stuff for kids okay i think we'll make our way down now then to the kitchen of the house which is our last stop on this tour sadly on the ground floor is peggotty's kitchen opening into a backyard 
with a pigeon house on a pole in the centre, without any pigeons in it, a great dog kennel in a corner, without any dog, and a quantity of fowls that looked terribly tall to me, walking about in a menacing and ferocious manner. Here is a long passage. What an enormous perspective I make of it. Leading from Peggotty's kitchen to the front door. A dark storeroom opens out of it, and that is a place to be run past at night, for I don't know what may be among those tubs and jars and old tea chests, when there is nobody in there with a dimly burning light, letting an air come out of the door, in which there is the smell of soap, pickles, pepper, candles and coffee, all at one whiff. So here we are then in the kitchen of the Birthplace Museum. It's the room that you will have come into when you entered the museum. In David Copperfield, which was, of course, his most autobiographical book, Dickens gave to Peggotty, who was David's mother, substitute the realm of precisely this kind of half-basement kitchen. It's where the warmth always was, both human and coal-fired. David, or or Charles himself indeed, remembers a kind of a dark storeroom opens out of it, tubs and jars and old tea chests, the smell of soap, pickles, pepper, candles and coffee, all at one whiff. But it is interesting, isn't it, Veronica, how much of the house was a, a female realm? This is another female realm. I doubt that John ever came down here much except to take a bottle of wine upstairs (laughs) that's not a small serving girl's job properly we're not quite sure how much dickens's mother elizabeth contributed to the actual physical running of the household if copperfield's mother was a very sad figure was modeled on her she And her servant, Peggotty, were on very intimate terms. And Peggotty sat in the parlour and Mother came down here. Mm. But Dickens always swore that Mrs Nickleby, Nicholas's mother, was directly based on his mother. And I doubt she'd even have known where the kitchen was left all of that to anybody else she possibly could. Right. And I mean, as Dickens, obviously, as he got wealthier and, and, and richer as he, as he grew older, how did his relationship change with his household and staff? As he got more and more celebrated and wealthy, he moved further above and further away from the world of the kitchen. He wrote about the world of the kitchen so powerfully when he was younger... It glowed. Mm. It was a domestic shrine. That's really the hub, the absolute hub of the heart, the hearth of the hub of the house. It was the centre of poorer homes and it was the order and the conscience uh, of more affluent dwellings. He called his first proper weekly magazine Household Words. He knew it had to be household something, (laughs) household voice. He wanted to live in the household affections and to be numbered among the household thoughts. And you know from that that his idea of a home expands in circles. Kind of concentric circles from the the, kitchen. A household isn't just a house. It's a structure of relationships in it, no matter how weird they are. Mm. 
together. Yes, I mean, it's exactly what you said at the beginning. It's, it's, it's any combination of people in, in any kind of home will, will make the household. Think of starved Smike, the, the wretched boy that, that Nicholas Nickleby saves. He's never known a home, but he thinks he might know what the idea of a perfect place, paradise is, and it's a home. We know he doesn't mean a a parlour or a study or a bedroom or any office. He means love. And love here in a kitchen, given by simple people simply. I, I don't think, actually, that Dickens' identity and presence is really on that couch upstairs. I think his heart, in every way, was down here even long after he'd left the kitchen. Well, that's it, I'm afraid, for uh, this podcast tour. Thanks very much to Veronica Horwell, who guided us around. The Charles Dickens extracts you've been hearing were read by Michael Tate. The producer was Ian Chambers. I'm John Henley, and thank you very much for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.